This morning we are in Matthew chapter 10. We're only going to progress a few verses this morning. Sometimes we get a bunch, sometimes we just get a few. This is a part of Jesus instructing his disciples. All of chapter 10 is Jesus instructing his 12. Let's read starting in verse 21. Jesus is continuing to describe what his disciples can expect. And he says, verse 21, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Lord, we're going to need your help this morning in this passage, as we do in every passage. God, I just pray that you help us to understand. God, I pray that you open our hearts to be taught by you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a passage. Just a few verses. And the last one, verse 23. Some consider among, to be among the most difficult to interpret in the New Testament. What is it talking about? You remember, we went into chapter 10. He's sending out 12 disciples. He's gathered his 12. He's chosen his 12. These are the 12 that I'm going to pour myself into. There's a greater number of disciples out there that have been following him, but he's chosen 12. The Father who guided him in that. And he's about to send them out in training to go out and do exactly what he had been doing. And that's the first part of this is describing, here's what you're going to do. I'm going to empower you to do exactly what I've been, what you've seen me do. This is his discipling his disciples. But then as we've continued, uh, it's gone beyond what that experience would be, right? It's talking about people dragging them into synagogues, dragging them before kings. These are experiences that would happen after Christ uh, went to the cross. And then now it seems to be going even more extreme. Family members delivering you over to death. And it gets to this last verse. It says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And then the first thought, you go, wait, his coming was going to be like part of this event of them going through? No. What is he talking about? What, what coming of the Son of Man is, is that referring to? And people have tried to tie that to a lot of different things. Um, is that, you know, I'm going to meet up with you? I'm going to return to this spot when, before you're done on this one event of going out and, and sharing the gospel? 
Or, you know, some have, have looked at that, well, maybe this is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Or some have looked at, well, in 70 A.D., there was the destruction of Jerusalem. Maybe this is a, the coming of Christ in, in judgment at that time. Maybe that's what he's talking about. Or maybe it's, it's the coming of Christ that we look forward to at the end of the age of the Gentiles that we're in. Uh, or maybe it's, Looking the very end, just in that time period, going through the tribulation. There's seven years of tribulation that the Bible tells us about that will happen at the end. There's definitely been a lot of discussion of people trying to figure out what is this really talking about. This morning, I don't want to try to impress you with, I've figured this one out. I've cracked the code. I've got some ideas on what that's about. But more importantly, I want you to not lose sight of what we have in this book. I love that that Tim held it up earlier. The glory of what's here. Some of the explanations are, well, Matthew got it wrong or he, he pulled from another source and it wasn't quite, quite right. Those are bad explanations of what's going on here because those don't see the Word of God for what it is. So I, I want to start actually this morning with just a, a quick look at what is it that we have in front of us. And then we're going to dive in and see what the Word of God offers us, even in a passage like this one, that we can take and apply to our lives. John seventeen seventeen. Jesus is praying for His disciples, and He says to the Father, Sanctify them in Your Word. Your Word is truth. Incredible statement. Your Word is truth. Your Word defines truth. And if I think of the fact that at the very beginning God spoke everything into existence, I can kind of see what this is about. Truth is defined by your word. What exists, the laws of physics, exist by your word. Time itself and space, everything exists by your word. What is good, what is morally right, what is evil, what is true about those things, about every question, what is true exists by the Word of God. His Word is truth. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16-17. All Scripture is breathed out by God. How much of Scripture? All Scripture. What did we say about God's words? About what He breathes out? It is true. It defines truth. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And what's it useful for? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof. Reproof is finding something I'm doing wrong that needs to be corrected, right? For correction. That's turning me in the right direction, right? Reproof is saying you're going in the wrong direction. Correction is saying here's what the right direction is, and it's for train- good for training in righteousness, ultimately, that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's what we have right here. 
this passage included, right? Paul, just a little bit before that passage in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, do your best. He's talking to Timothy, but this is a word for all of us. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That word in Greek for handling, uh, translating it that way to try to, under, to make it clear what this is talking about, but literally it means cutting straight the Word of God. Now, I know there's a number of ladies in our church that like to do these quilting square things. Uh, they've, I, don't, I don't know how it all works, but there's something that has to do with 10 cents and I don't know. They get together and do things that I have no idea how they accomplish. It comes out beautiful. But I would imagine it's important, ladies, that when you're cutting pieces that you cut straight. What happens if you don't cut straight? It's a, it's a bad result. And I can't cut as intricate and straight as they do on those things, of these little triangles and pieces fitting in, right? You know, Paul was a tent maker. He knew what cutting straight meant when you are taking pieces and putting them together. Cutting straight the Word of God, properly handling the Word of God. When you interpret all of the pieces correctly, they will fit perfectly. And here's our first point this morning that really is outside of the, the passage, but it's something that we need to understand as we look at a difficult passage, is that in a true picture, every piece fits. Every piece fits. If I have a true understanding, a true picture of what Scripture is teaching me, what God is teaching me through His Word, that when, when there's a great amount of detail, I, I'm taking that detail. When it's not intended to have a great amount of detail, I'm not taking too much or reading something into it. That, that what's intended there by God through that author that He has chosen to speak through, in this case Matthew, if I understand it correctly, every piece will fit perfectly because God's Word is true, perfectly true. And all Scripture is breathed out by God. And when we cut straight the Word of God, every piece will fit. And so, as we're getting into a passage like this, which may look towards end times, how many different models and views are there around what's going to happen in the end times? Many, many, right? There is only one true picture. And as we understand things correctly, they'll fit. If something doesn't seem to fit, there's something I don't understand right yet, right? Something for us to understand. God's Word is true. It has integrity. It is right. And it is profitable, in this passage even, for teaching us, for correcting us, for giving us the right direction to go, right? We can look... At examples of bad examples, even in Scripture, of handling of Scripture. The Pharisees and how they interpreted things. As we're looking, you know, what's the right way to interpret things that might look towards 
future events. I can tell you, the further we get into Matthew, there's going to be a lot of prophecy. It's going to be fun. There's going to be things where we're going to be trying to figure out, well, what is this about? The tribulation and, and end times. I love looking at that because I'm looking at what is true <laughs> and what is going to happen in the future. You know, the Pharisees of Jesus' time, they had scripture that was prophesying about things in the future. And they had the way that they interpreted it. And when you don't interpret something right, if you have a model that's not quite right, then pieces won't quite fit. And what did they do? Well, their, their view um, on what this Messiah was going to be is very much tied to what they saw in the past history of, the, of Israel, right? You, God raised up a king, a good king. You know, there's going to be this eternal king, and this Messiah. And, and they saw the current situation of the oppression of Rome and what was this going to look like. Their interpretation was very much this Messiah, Jewish Messiah, to come and save Israel and overthrow all of these evil nations. And they, he would reign right there. And there's a lot of scripture they could bring into that. But then there was scripture that didn't fit well to their model and how they had put it together. You go into Isaiah 53. Even today, Jews don't study Isaiah 53. It doesn't match well to the model. And that's what we'll do. We have elaborate models of things. And, and I'd be careful, the more elaborate the model outside of Scripture that we put together, well, all of these patterns and all these pieces, if one piece doesn't fit, what does that say about our model? Something's wrong. Because a true picture, in a true picture, every piece will fit. Now, the model might be close. But the Scripture's not an issue. I'm not going to throw out Isaiah 53. I'm not going to throw out a part of Scripture because it doesn't match my model. I'm going to test the model. Back in the 1940s, a uh, major discovery was made. Someone threw a rock up into a cave out in the desert, and they heard something rattle. What's that? There's all these pots, clay pots. Found all of these scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, dating back to Jesus' time and before Jesus' time. A wealth of copies of the Old Testament Scripture. Well, in those scrolls, there was also some commentaries. What they believe the scriptures meant. Their interpretation. That group was, it was this Qumran group, was the name of the group. They were a sect of Jews that were kind of separate from the rest of the Jews. And they had uh, these views, um, they, they had these commentaries called Pesher. And, and these commentaries saw the events in scripture through the eyes of current events. So their interpretive method, so basically what they filtered everything through is to look at the current events, this is something we do today, look at current events, place a value on things that are happening and start there. And then we go and interpret Scripture to match. What if one of those things is not as special as I think it is, or it doesn't mean what I think it is. Well, things aren't going to fit perfectly. But if I do that, and I'm kind of throwing away Scripture that doesn't match well, and I'm adding, 
I'm not getting a true picture. That's what they were doing back then. They thought that this Elijah that was going to come ahead of the Messiah, that they were that. Well, John the Baptist was that. That was the true picture, that John the Baptist would come ahead of Christ. They thought they were in that position. They had all these interesting views. They made the mistake of having these preconceptions based on current events to say, no, we are that, right? Not a true understanding. There are good systems, bad systems. The more elaborate ones tend to not fit as well. There's a system that I think is a very good one, a model. We call it the Trinity. You know, the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible. But what we observe from God's Word about who God is has been put together into a model, a set of truths, three truths. God is one. The Shema. God is, there's one God. God has three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each person is distinct. Each person is fully God. If you think about that for a second, that's beyond what we can really wrap our minds around. But that's what Scripture teaches. And so we just say, this is what's true, because Scripture, teaches, the, uh, God is infinite, He's beyond what we can comprehend, and sometimes what we'll bring to Scripture is an effort to pull it down to where I can wrap my head around it, especially when it comes to God or future things. There's been all sorts of different ways that doctrine of the Trinity has been changed, but then it doesn't fit. If all the pieces don't fit, it's not a true picture. One is to try to resolve it by saying, okay, well, yes, God is three persons. Each person is fully God, but he's just only one of them at a time. He's, he's kind of, we'll see him as God the Father, and then, and then now he's acting as God the Son, and now he's acting as God the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't fit. What happens if I go to the Jesus' baptism? What do I see? The Spirit of God as a dove descending on the Son of God and the voice of the Father God saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Simultaneously, all three. No, that doesn't work. That's called modalism to say God is only one at a time. It doesn't fit. And so, it doesn't work. If any one piece doesn't fit. Anybody played Kakuro? My wife's back there. Yes. Can you put up that picture? My wife loves these things. I've played it a few times. She's like has it in her head. She can just see it and boom, that's the answer. It's kind of basic. Doesn't look like it. And this is the app. You can get it. It's uh I forget what it's called. Something look up Kakuro. But it's like you look in the upper left corner, right? At every row, the number on the left. All of the squares will add up to that number. So it's a three, the one and a two add up to three. All the columns, every column will add up to the number at the top. And there won't be any repeating numbers. That's the whole thing. It, easy, right? Just fill it in. Well, when you do these things, um, 
you notice if you do it on paper, you kind of want to not commit to a number if you're not sure. If you notice in the bottom, there's a pencil and a pen. The pencil tool will make the little tiny numbers in the edges to say, I think it might be this or this. Here's what it might be. But then the pen is the, to lock in that number. Here's what this is, right? I have done one of these and locked in the wrong number somewhere. By the time I figured it out, there was no way I was going to figure out which one was wrong because I had built on something that wasn't right. Often when we interpret Scripture, we'll just bust in there and write with pen. This is what that means. And then we base something off of that. And we base something off of that and we start building and by the time something really doesn't fit, where did we go wrong? Something that we have assumed is wrong. As we dive into God's Word, there are times we need to write in pencil. And be careful how strongly we say, no, this is what it is. As we get further into Matthew, there's going to be some times when I'm going to be writing in pencil. Right? There's going to be differences. There are some things that we absolutely write in pen. Every time you come to Scripture, you're going to have preconceptions, right? Hopefully they're not preconceptions built on tying world events to a very specific thing, and it must be that, and so now I'm going to try to fit Scripture to that. It should go the other way around. <laughs> but there are good pre preconceptions. One is what we already read. God's Word is true. Every piece will fit. Those are preconceptions. Those are good preconceptions. Preconceptions, that there's salvation only through faith in Christ. I have lots of Scripture to back that up, so it's not an empty preconception. That's, that's written in pen in my mind. Because I can go to a lot of Scripture, have a good testimony of that truth. But is it pre-trib or post-trib? I sure hope it's pre, and I believe that it's pre but if I go to every scripture with that written in pen, and some of you are going, I don't even know what you just said. What are you talking about, pre-trib, post-trib? It's a couple of views that people like to argue over, right? I might miss something important, and I might find myself way off base if I've written something in pen, and I'm not carefully setting the pieces. It might be mid-trib. I don't know, there's a lot of pieces that suggest that might be the case. If you're wondering what that is, when does Jesus come to, to take us home with him? Is it before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or the end of the tribulation? You're going, what is the tribulation? Well, we're about to find out. And we're going to possibly be writing a little bit in pencil this morning. All right, let's look at this again. Verse 21, what is he describing? Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child. This is terrible. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We know something about Matthew already that he doesn't necessarily care as much about 
the chronological time of things. He likes to be topical in how he puts things together. Um, it's possible here that all of these pieces from what Jesus is instructing at the beginning of this passage uh, on the immediate event to what was coming, those could have been teachings of Jesus for his disciples at different times. Possible. If I compare to some of the other Gospels, it, it could be. Does that lessen the truth of this or the importance of these things being together here? No. God was speaking through Matthew. God chose Matthew, a person who likes to put things together topically. God chose him to be one of the gospel writers. And God is now guiding him in the process. So even if there's things in here pulled from different points in time in Jesus teaching his disciples, their proximity in putting them together here is guided by God. It's part of God's Word. So that's important to realize here. Is this talking about today, maybe? This kind of persecution where brother is handing brother over to death. Parents and children. Parents handing their children over to death. Children handing their parents over to death. Or is this in the future? There are some things that are happening today. If I just look, if you go to icommittopray.com, icommittopray.com, um, it's, it's put up by the voice of the martyrs. You can find prayer requests from around the world, things that are happening. Sometimes it is, brother, giving brother over to death. Family members. I found two from this past month. September 16th, two different posts. Um, not of giving a family member over to death, but you can kind of see what's going on. A, a Christian or a, an older lady came to, came to know Christ in Laos. Laos. They speak Lao. Laos, yes. And her children, her grown children... Her daughter said, if, you, if you're a Christian, I can't come visit you. And her son disowned her. And both of them say that if people at my work found out that you're a Christian, I could lose my job. Breaking apart family. She depends on her kids for income. But she said... I'm going to keep loving you kids, but I'm going to keep loving the Lord. In the Middle East, the other article I saw, Rama and Joseph got married. And now they fled their home in Syria after threats from family due to their marriage. Rama is a former Muslim who now follows Christ. And Joseph is from a Christian background. When Rama's family learned of their marriage, they complained to a police officer. Boy, that's different than here, isn't it? And the officer beat Joseph and warned him to stay away from Rama. Family turning over to authorities. A family member. 
They have fled the region. They're still living in a place, I guess, that is not legal for a Muslim to marry a non-Muslim. And they're looking to, to uh, make their way to the West. I don't know yet that it is what Jesus is describing here, though. Something that seems even greater. More of a regular thing to say brother is turning brother over to death. But we can kind of see a pattern in a direction things are happening. It's possible also when I'm looking at this, and here's a pencil. Write this in pencil. If I look at Old Testament, prophecies that have already happened, God really liked to use history and events to point at something he's going to do in the future, something that, that's going to happen in the future, right? We see that a lot in the Old Testament, things that have culminated and have happened uh, already now, and we can make the connection looking back. The life of, of uh, Joseph, right? It, there's so many types of Christ in the life of Joseph. That's, it, you see the, just the power and, and sovereignty of God to be able to take historic events and write into those historic events what's going to happen in a future event. And we call that a type. Uh, and, and the scripture is true in what it's saying about those current events. And at the same time, it is true in what it is pointing to of a future event. Is it possible... Maybe, that in this case, I have the sending of the twelve to Israel. And then as that has been placed together, the instructions to the twelve for that event, and then what is now progressing, escalating, really. If I look at this passage, it escalates. Greater and greater persecution, worse and worse situation. It was being dragged into synagogues, dragged into before kings, and now it's brother, it's family members, parents, kids, turning each other over to death. Hated by all. That this progression, perhaps, is pointing all the way out to events that will happen in the tribulation. In the tribulation... There will be another sending of 12, but it will be 12 times 12,000, 144,000. 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. Now, it appears in Revelation that those are witnesses, those are sealed by God, protected by God. His mark is on them. That they're witnesses to all the nations. But I do also know that um, the tribulation, well, in pencil, but I'm, I'm pretty certain, a big part of the tribulation is turning the heart of Israel back to God. There's a partial hardening that Roman tells us about, that right now this is the age of Gentiles, when God is bringing in all those who are outside of Israel into his fold into the body of Christ. And we'll get to the tribulation ultimately. And at the end of the tribulation is when Israel 
well, in the tribulation, where, where we see prophesied in Zechariah and other places where, where the heart of Israel will be turned back to God, to Christ. They'll see and they will mourn over the one that they pierced. They'll realize who Jesus is, the one that they've hoped for for so long. As a nation, they will turn back to Christ. And so there is a focus on Israel. Is this perhaps a type? Jesus sending 12 out, going only to Israel. Maybe. There's something there. Doesn't quite fit exactly in my mind. But it could be something there. This is... This is pointing out all the way to where there's going to be terrible persecution among friends and family as well. Whatever it is, what can we learn from this passage? He says... In verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Something that we are increasingly experiencing already. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. There's a truth, a promise. What is it to endure? This has more a sense of patiently trusting God than some kind of pressing forward. Patiently trusting God in the midst of trial, in the midst of things. This last two years, the reality is we've all had loss. The way of life that was before COVID hit is not the way of life Now, there's differences. That's loss. That's change. That's as a whole community. But as a church, as as Christians, there's other kinds of change going on. More difficulties, things to endure, to be patient and trusting God. And the promise here is that for those who endure, they will be saved. The foundation of endurance is faith for a Christian. Those who truly trust God, have their faith in God, they will endure. And the promise here is salvation. So here's the second point, and this one comes out of this passage now. A promise that we have is that the one who trusts God will be saved. We need to know that. You're going through a time of patiently trusting God. <laughs> I can trust Him. Salvation comes at the end. If I'm, if, if I'm speaking to believers that are going through the tribulation, the worst, there's never been anything like it before, the one who trusts God, the one who endures, will be saved. If I'm talking to my neighbor who's struggling. But they trust the Lord. They say, no, the one who trusts the Lord. Salvation is in the Lord. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust what? In the name of the Lord our God. 
My trust isn't in my portfolio. My trust isn't in my job. My trust, you know, those things are great. And I, and I'll, and, and I, and I do have confidence because of preparation. We're going to have a harsh winter, I hear, again. Well, I'm going to prepare for that. But my trust isn't ultimately going to be in a generator and a water supply. Right? My trust is in the Lord our God. Let's take a peek at Revelation. We might as well, since we're talking about such things. Revelation chapter 6, we see these seals being opened. If you've never been through Revelation, we're not going to go into great detail of that. But every time a seal is opened, something new happens. And, and this is describing the first part of the tribulation. Seven years, we're told that there's going to be tribulation on this world and, and judgment on this world like there never has been before. And, and this, is, this is during the first half of that. And each of these events... Um, is getting worse, and, and it's through human uh, means, through, through things that would be attributed uh, to man initially that these things are, are coming in. And, but, it, but you get to the sixth seal, and it's a worldwide earthquake. Imagine every fault line giving way at the same time resulting in volcanic activity worldwide and ash spread all around the atmosphere to the point that it blocks out the sun everywhere in the world. And for the first time, the world realizes this isn't just natural events or man-made events. This is the judgment of God. So we see the end of Revelation chapter 6. Oh, I didn't put bookmarks in. I didn't have to do this. The old-fashioned way, actually find it. End of Revelation, chapter 6. In verse 13, it's this, it's this what happened after the sixth seal, and it says, the stars, in the, sky, the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved from its, removed from its place. So this is the, the final description um, the sky vanishing, uh, most likely the volcanic ash, given this kind of an event. And then it says in verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free. So imagine, if this was to happen very soon, this would be the leaders of China, of Russia, of the United States, of every nation, and all of the rich, Elon Musk, Bezos, all of them, and, and everybody else, and, and it doesn't matter how great or small, what are they doing? Great and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and then it asks the question, who can stand? We have experienced difficulty. We have never experienced this. And the difficulty that you have experienced, 
He asks the question, who can stand? All of the next chapter describes who can stand. There's two groups. There is the 144,000 sealed by God. His mark, his name upon their foreheads. They're ones that can stand. And then it describes multitudes beyond number from every nation, robes washed white in the blood of the Lamb who are crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Hmm. In pencil, <laughs> my best understanding of this is that that group, we're not actually part of that group. That's the group that likely was a result of the witness of those 144,000. It's like 144,000 Pauls ordained by God to go and be a witness to all the world through the great tribulation. These are the ones coming out at the end of the tribulation. Martyrs. Praising the Lord Jesus. Who is the one who can stand? Is the one who's put their trust in God Almighty, who put their faith in Jesus Christ. The one who trusts in God will be saved. I don't think that group includes us. We're more likely in the situation, if I go back to the beginning of Revelation, in chapter 3, it starts with letters written to the churches at that time, in that area. This is John on the island of Patmos, writing to churches, and the order of churches is the order that if you're going to go visit them, that's how you would meet up with those churches. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, he's talking to the church in Philadelphia. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And then in the beginning of verse 11, he says, I am coming soon. This is a piece that would suggest those with patient endurance, trusting God, will be kept from that hour of trial, will be saved from that hour of trial. And when he says, I am coming soon, I don't think that's talking about his coming in judgment. Remember, I'm a pre-trib, or maybe mid. I would, in pencil, that seems to fit those who patiently wait on the Lord being saved 
before the great wrath of God comes on this world in the tribulation. Him coming to take his bride, the church. Here is something I have seen many places in Scripture. And it's important for us as we go through anything. This is our last point. Our hope is set on Christ's return. I don't see a lot of Scripture that places our hope in this time now. I'd like to be able to tell you there's a lot of hope to be found in this time now. That there actually is joys and wonderful things that we get to experience now in this world, but that's not where the Scripture directs us to place our hope. Not the time period that it, the Scripture puts us to, <laughs> to place our hope. It, it points us to the revelation of Christ. That, that day when we'll actually get to see Him. And it might be in His return, it might be when I go to be with Him. But, but that's where my hope is placed. If I'm going through something difficult, if, if things are just falling apart around me, my hope is not set on those things. If, if I lose my job, if, if my house is destroyed by flood, I've talked to so many people whose houses and everything in them has been just wiped away and, and wiped clean. And I can tell you, talking to people who have their hope set in Christ is different than talking to any other person. I can see it. There's a hopelessness and devastation that comes into someone's life whose hope is set only on things that are here. And so the, God's Word directs us, don't set your hope on these things, but set your hope on Christ and His return and the glory of what it will be when we see Him face to face. And, and whether we're in this time now, or who knows, we could end up finding ourselves going right to the tribulation. And, and if my understanding is right and the, and the pieces, the, the true picture is that he comes first for his bride, then that will be us either before that or in the middle of that or going to be with him. And my, my hope is set on his return. Or if it's to those who are in the tribulation. Terrible, terrible situation to be in. My hope is still on His return. Let's read this passage one more time. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you, my disciples, will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before what? Your hope, the Son of Man, comes. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises that are true. 
God, thank you that we can be directed by your word, even if it's future things that haven't happened yet, even if it's things that we don't quite understand yet to fit into the puzzle of what is true. God, we can still be instructed by it. The hope of your word, the direction of your word, stand strong. God, help us to receive it. If there's anyone here, God, who's just overwhelmed by current circumstances, God, I pray for your encouragement, the hope that only comes in you. You are working even now in our lives now. You hold tomorrow in your hands. You, you hold the future in your hands. That's something that's just right here in these pages, God. There is nothing in the future that's going to surprise you. There's nothing in tomorrow that's going to surprise you. Our hope is set on you, Lord Jesus, and our ultimate hope where we fix our gaze is set on your return. Lord, thank you for your care. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. 
God, we have a living hope in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for sending your Son. Thank you for the hope that we have that carries us even now today, that carries us tomorrow. The hope in our Lord Jesus, guiding us, teaching us by His Word, through His Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. I pray, God, that we would just um, take this week in boldness and courage to go out and be a light to the world around us because we carry living hope. Lord, thank you for all of your work. Thank you for the glory of your work and what you're going to do. You've already called your shot. Here's how it's going to happen. Lord, we look forward to your return. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Don't forget, if you would like to be a part of the training, the gospel uh, outreach training that's happening this coming Saturday. Um, please sign up there back at the table that has the flowers. <laughs>